This video is part of an audiobook series featuring the book The Good Country Equation by Simon Anholt. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel or my website for downloads. Chapter 17 From the Natural Cosmopolitans to the Global Vote Intrigued by the big response to the Good Country Index and my TED Talk, and the similar sentiments that many of the people who wrote to me expressed, Robert Govers and I conducted further research to find out how many people were likely to share the values of the good country philosophy. Were the 18,000 people who had written to me most of the people in the world who were attracted by this worldview, or were they just the tip of the iceberg? If so, how big was the iceberg? To estimate the size and distribution of these people, whom I nicknamed Natural Cosmopolitans, we used the World Values Survey, which polls respondents from 76 countries, representing about 83% of the world's population. In this way, we found that, at a very conservative estimate and setting the bar extremely high, no less than 10% of the world's population, or about 700 million people, were natural cosmopolitans, people who strongly and instinctively feel that they are members of the human race first, and citizens of their own nation second, or perhaps equal. Plainly, this cohort was bigger than any party, movement, organization, or NGO. It was a group the size of a small nation. Indeed, if it were a nation, it would be the third biggest on Earth after India and China. I take it back, not small. The distribution of the natural cosmopolitans is interesting. These core values of the good country are correlated less strongly with education, income, gender, and other demographic indicators than one might suppose. Although there are many natural cosmopolitans in wealthy Western country, the ranking is by no means as dominated by these countries as, for example, is the good country index. The countries with the highest proportion of natural, natural cosmopolitans in their population turned out to be Andorra and Sweden, both with 60%. But more than a third of the populations of Trinidad and Tobago and Uruguay are natural cosmopolitans. In Burkina Faso, it's nearly a quarter. In Serbia and Mali, more than a fifth. In some respects, being a natural cosmopolitan seems to be as much a character trait as anything else. Indeed, there are some striking commonalities between the natural cosmopolitan and the character traits defined in the field of personality psychology as agreeableness, which reflects individual differences in general concern for social harmony. Agreeable individuals value getting along with others. They are generally considerate, kind, generous, trusting, and trustworthy, helpful, and willing to compromise their interests with others. Agreeable people also have an optimistic view of human nature. Commonalities can also be found with the traits defined as openness to experience, a general appreciation for art, emotion, adventure, unusual ideas, imagination, curiosity, and variety of experience. People who are open to experience are intellectually curious, open to emotion, sensitive to beauty, and willing to try new things. They are also more likely to hold unconventional beliefs, interested in learning and exploring new cultures. 
There is a strong connection between liberal ethics and openness to experience, such as support for policies endorsing racial tolerance. Of course, billions of people who aren't natural cosmopolitans are also agreeable, kind, generous, trustworthy, and so forth. But relatively few people who are natural cosmopolitans lack these qualities. The experience of growing up as a natural cosmopolitan must vary enormously depending on what country you happen to be born in. If you're a natural cosmopolitan in one of the countries at the bottom of the distribution list, say India or Tunisia, where you are among just 2% of the population, then it's highly likely that you will never have met anybody in your life who shares your worldview, your natural tolerance toward outsiders, your interest in the world outside your own country's borders. That must feel pretty lonely. It was clear from the thousands of messages that continued to reach me in response to the Good Country Index and my TED Talk that many of the natural cosmopolitans around the world wanted to engage actively with the Good Country idea, and simply examining the index was not satisfying their curiosity about this new way of looking at the world. The Global Vote So, in 2016, I launched The Global Vote, an online platform that lets anybody, anywhere in the world, vote in the elections of other countries. When a general election takes place in America, or Indonesia, or Namibia, or anywhere else, the citizens of those countries pick the candidate who, think they, who they think will do the most for them. In The Global Vote, people around the world decide which candidate they think will do the most for everyone else, for the rest of humanity. Every few weeks, starting with the Icelandic presidential elections in June of 2016, I chose an election going on somewhere in the world. It might be for a head of state, an important referendum, or even for the Secretary General of the United Nations, a process which is about as far from trans being transparent, open, and democratic as one can get. The website provided a short explanation of the main issues in each election, whether it was in Sao Tome and Principe or the United States of America, in a succinct, balanced, scrupulously neutral and factual profile of each of the candidates, describing their published views on all matters connected with the world outside their own country's borders. I also wrote to each candidate in each election and gave them the opportunity to tell the global vote voters in person what, if elected, they would offer to the world outside their own country. I always asked the same two questions. First, if you're elected, what will you do for the rest of us around the world? And two, what is your vision for your country's role in the world? Some of the, some of the candidates were happy to do this. Savior Chishimba, a candidate for the Zambian presidential election, election in 2016, submitted a highly detailed manifesto, setting out his international aims and aspirations for Zambia should he be elected. He was not elected as president of Zambia, but 38% of the voters from more than 26 countries chose him for the global vote. I even started getting emails from candidates intending to stand in future elections that the global vote hadn't yet covered, asking whether their election could be covered and whether they could provide a statement for the global voters. A university lecturer in Bangladesh Sahiba Matin Bipasha wrote to say that she had been using the global vote as a teaching tool. 
she would pick a faraway country that her students knew little about, tell them about its history, geography, and politics, and they would follow the election on the global vote, campaign on campus for their favorite candidates, cast their votes online, and would often stay up late to see who won the global vote and who won the formal election. It honestly hadn't occurred to me that the global vote could be used as an educational tool, but it is now used in schools and universities around the world. Writing the candidate profiles and keeping them strictly factual and impartial was never easy, and the global vote would have been impossible without dozens of volunteers from all over the world who gave up their time to help me collect information about the candidates. As we worked on the profiles, it never failed to strike me how many political candidates, even though relationships with other states were fundamental to the prosperity and even the survival of their country, still campaigned on purely domestic issues. One might also wonder why their voters tolerate this, and for how long they will continue to do so. Speaking of Sao Tome and Principe, people might also wonder how some of the countries whose elections are covered in the global vote with a small population, a small economy, a small land area, and a low international profile could possibly have much impact on the rest of the world. Well, as I've explained in earlier chapters, globalization has created such a dense tangle of economic, social, political, technological, commercial, legal, and cultural connections that every country, small or large, rich or poor, humble or ambitious, now affects and is affected by every other country, near or far. If a country fails to control its waste or its emissions, it will harm the atmosphere and the oceans, and they belong to all of us. If it fails to make its proper contributions to the international system, others will need to contribute more. If it fails to maintain peace and stability, other countries may have to get involved. If it can't offer its citizens good prospects, it will produce more migrants who will bring both benefits and stresses to the countries they move to. If it remains poor, other countries may need to help it out. If it becomes wealthy, it may help poorer countries. Any country's people, its culture, its cuisine, its products, and its services may bring delight and variety to the lives of people of distant countries. People might visit as tourists or investors and contribute to its economy while enriching their own lives and experience. These are just some of the reasons why we should care about every country on earth. And this is why we should care whether the leaders of those countries are outward-looking or inward-looking, whether they occasionally think about the rest of us and not merely their own voters. Everybody who becomes a head of state or head of government joins the team that runs the planet, whether they like it or not. And any country of any size or strength can produce a great leader and share that leader with the world when it comes to making the big collective decisions that affect all of us. Great leaders work for all of humanity. They benefit all of us with their wisdom and courage and imagination, not just their own voters. The global vote is purely symbolic, but my hope is that as it grows, it might begin to achieve real influence as soon as there are more people outside any given country voting in its election as there are inside the country, the global vote becomes very hard to ignore. And over time, leaders of the world 
leaders the world over might start thinking not only about what they are going to do for their own people, but also about their legacy to humanity. Despite the absence of a marketing budget, the global vote performed rather well. And by the time the U.S. presidential elections came around in 2016, nearly 100,000 people in 170 countries were casting their symbolic vote for the candidates they felt were most likely to represent the interests of people around the world, not merely their own voters. The candidates who have been picked in each of the elections so far covered by the global vote are not, usually, the candidates picked in the real election. This creates an, an interesting byproduct, a collection of individuals who stood for high office and now have a bit of time on their hands as they are suddenly and unexpectedly not the president of their country, yet who argue, arguably have one of the broadest democratic mandates in history, having been elected by people from over a hundred countries. For fun, I call this group the Glorious Losers Club, and one day I'd like to bring them together and we will do something amazing. Thank you for watching. Please like, subscribe, and visit my channel for more exciting content.